Coming to you from WUGA in Athens, Georgia, this is AquaThread, a podcast that illustrates the connections in our world from land to water to people and everything in between. We work to bring you new voices and often underrepresented perspectives on many intertwined topics. I'm your host, Jenna Jambeck, an environmental engineering professor at the University of Georgia, and each episode I'm joined by a rotating set of co-hosts, mostly in their early career, This episode, I have Dr. Amari Walker-Franklin, a research chemist at RTI, with me. How are you doing today, Amari? I'm honestly feeling really great this morning. I'm actually about to close on a home, um, and I'm so excited about those new opportunities for my sustainability journey. I think really when you're thinking about owning a home versus renting, it opens so many new responsibilities and new choices. So I'm thinking about like growing my own garden, using compost, um, and then just kind of making my own decisions about things like carpet. So it's just opened so many more perspectives. I also got back from um, D.C. this week. I was there for uh, the Marine Debris Foundation uh, Board of Director meetings and some visits to Capitol Hill. And it's also just so interesting to be there and talk about the interface of science and policy. And I know this is a really strong interest of yours as well. I would love to hear a little bit more from you about, you know, what you've done at that interface and in D.C. and and why do you think it's so important for uh, science to inform policy? Yeah, so I I haven't actually been to D.C. for for policy work yet other than virtually. Most of it's usually to see the awesome natural science and space Smithsonian museums along with the congressional buildings. But my virtual call into D.C. was uh, for the rally that reintroduced the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act mm. in 2021 to Congress. So I was one of the science advocates on the panel alongside senators and activists and community members that were really pushing for us to address plastic pollution on a national scale. And so I think it was so important for me to, to also be you know, be there and be able to represent the voice of scientists because we provide a different perspective of Um, you know, what the impact could be for plastic in our environment and for us as a society. Um, And so it was a really great full circle moment for me to be able to communicate um, to a larger audience and and do science communication. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's an amazing opportunity to be able to do that. And I, I agree, science communication is also a big part of our work. And I think another one of our of our interests, and especially for you, I have to say, you know, you have this YouTube channel and I so admired, I think even before we maybe met, um, you know, I, I had seen you on Twitter and um, just so admire the fact that you had created this YouTube channel. So I just, I want to hear more about that, your your interest in that and, and how you, you took that step. I think for me, it was a global pandemic that shut us all down and forced us all to, you know, stay within our homes and kind of rethink. Um, But it was actually in the middle of my PhD when that pandemic started. And I had to kind of really rethink about my science and how I wanted my science to get out to people because I felt that I was only presenting the work that I was doing to other audience members that also understood the topic and were studying the topic. And I felt like understanding chemicals and plastic and our exposure to it and the impact on freshwater systems was so important to not just us uh, as scientists, but other people that I wanted to use different platforms like Twitter and YouTube um, and other social media techniques 
to talk about that and get people thinking about solutions and alternatives to address this. Uh, so I started the YouTube channel, um, just took a couple classes on how to make videos. And from there, it was a, a, a pretty good hit and quite a lot of fun to make some things that were entertaining and uh, sometimes funny, but you know, really got people thinking about our own interactions with plastic. Yeah, definitely. You were informative and yes, entertaining and, and fun as well. So I encourage all of our listeners to check out uh, your YouTube channel. So, yeah, speaking of the science policy interface today, I'm really excited for the guests we have joining us. So you and I are going to be um, chatting with Rachel Karasik, who is a policy associate, a senior policy associate at the Nicholas Institute for Energy, Environment and Sustainability. And then Zoe Diana, an environmental toxicology and policy PhD candidate who's very close to graduation, which is exciting. Both of them from Duke University, which is also where you got your PhD, Amari. So did you all uh, know each other at Duke? Yes. So Zoe and I both shared faculty community members together. And I started a year or so before her. So we kind of got to show each other the ropes for plastic pollution since it was just kind of uh, taking off at Duke at the time. And then we were part of a journal club. And then that plastic pollution working group was started. And that includes uh, Rachel as well. Um, now, we didn't get to hang out as much since Zoe was alternating between Beaufort, which is on the coastal side of North Carolina, and then Durham. So it was quite a lot of driving. But I, it, you know, it was uh, really great to be able to interact and see all the great things that Zoe was up to and Rachel. Um, and then Zoe and Rachel were a part of the team at the Duke Nicholas Institute for Energy, Environment, and Sustainability that produced the Policy Inventory for International and National Policies on Plastics. The Plastic Policy Inventory uh, is also an online open access database with over 550 policies in 30 different languages and was adopted by governments at all levels from international to local. And the goal was really to reduce plastic pollution. And so that inventory that they were a part of includes original policy documents that can be downloaded and even searched on with keywords or you know, other factors of interest like geography, language, and level of government. So I really gotta give my hats off to uh, you both, Rachel and Zoe, uh, and the rest of the dynamic team for the work done to create that inventory. Yeah, it's really been so amazing to have that as a resource. So Rachel and Zoe, welcome. So glad you're with us today. I'm wondering if if you can both talk a bit more about your background, sort of how you ended up working in this plastic pollution and policy space in general, and then a bit more specifically on the policy inventory project. Uh, Rachel, I'm wondering if you can go first. Awesome. Um, I guess it's like a broader background. I come from, you know, an ocean and coastal policy background. I like, like many other people in this space grew up going to the ocean and loving the ocean and, and yada, yada. So, so I really came from, from that background and I was trained in fisheries, um, kind of social sciences. And I was really drawn to the connection between, you know, fisheries and fishing communities and their dependence on the sustainable resource and the ways in which socially and culturally and economically they're so intertwined um, with the the need for a sustainable and clean resource. And I think there's a lot of kind of connections there between how I think about plastic. 
Um, and you know, I've, I've looking back, I think I got interested in plastic in 2016 when both Zoe and I graduated from our master's degrees at Duke. And this was in the summer of 2016, uh, the, Climate Paris Agreement had just been signed. We were finishing up the end of the Obama administration. There was a lot of sort of hope and optimism for, you know, a sustainable future. And we were asking really cool and exciting questions like, how are we going to feed the world in 50 years? Um, and then in November, with the change of administration, I think that that clarity and that sense of control over the future, especially when it comes to environmental work, kind of vanished. And so I think as a way to like in the moments after after to to regain control, I started to try to, you know, get more of a handle on on my own footprint, you know, and as part of all the, I think, bizarre things we did as a trauma response to to that. Um, and so I think like everybody who gets into trying to understand their waste footprint, you get kind of obsessed and pretty, you know, you geek out on on what you're consuming and how you're disposing of it and what's recyclable and what isn't. Um, and so that was sort of the personal background. And in 2019, when I joined the Nicholas Institute at Duke on like our first day, the Pew Charitable Trust um, approached us and they were looking to get into the plastics work and they wanted us to do a very sort of bird's eye view analysis of the landscape of policies and government responses to the plastics crisis. Uh, and we were really hoping that the like a repository of plastics policy documents already existed that we could then run an analysis on and learned quickly that it didn't. And so for the first year of the grant, Zoe and myself and, and a couple other people and a ton of students just like went through every single possible legal database, like legislative database, secondary resources to pull out and develop this internal inventory of policy documents that we then uh, qualitatively coded and tried to characterize and assess their design. Um, and that was a lot of work. And basically, after the 300-page report came out that I'm assuming everybody read, we recognized that uh, chances are that in a few years' time, somebody would repeat that research, and we wanted to save them the time. And so we decided to put the inventory online. Uh, and, and that's kind of where we're at now. And stay tuned. Uh, we're finishing up the 2022 update. We'll have over 700 policies now, um, more languages, more representation. So that should be out at the kind of mid-March point. Great. Good, good to hear that. Uh, Zoe, let's, yeah, I mean, so what is it like to to maybe jump into this as maybe one of your first big projects? It was a 300-page report. So let's hear a little bit on your background, sort of how you ended up here and, and what it was like to work on this policy project as well. Yeah, thank you so much again for having us on today. This is super exciting. Um, yeah, Rachel mentioned this a bit, but we actually both did our master's at Duke um, 2014 to 2016. And at that time, I wasn't studying plastic at all. Um, I was still interested in questions around how does human activity impact the oceans and how can we sustainably, you know, have our needs met as humans while not impacting the ocean that we also really depend on. Um, so I was actually studying anti-fouling coatings on the the paints on boats that 
aim to prevent barnacles from fouling or adhering and sticking to boats and weighing them down. Um, so it was a really great experience. And later, like years later, we're now realizing that a lot of those paints are actually comprised of plastic um, and, and polymers. So I didn't mm -hmm. know that at the time that I was actually studying plastic. Um, but years later, it's crossed my desk again. Um, but there, my research was more on the natural sciences. I was studying how do barnacles adhere so we could basically find a way to have them not stick to boats, but that's less uh, toxic than the current anti-fouling paints that um, often, you know, kill the animals by um, to keep them from sticking. So we were looking for a more environmentally benign way to keep that going. So my research was on that for a few years. I took a break after my master's and worked in environmental policy for a bit. I was really loving that research, but it was a bit more on the basic side and I was looking to widen my lens a bit. So I worked in environmental policy and compliance for a few years. I was writing environmental impact statements and environmental assessments, um, those giant reports that the federal government uh, needs in order to assess and disclose any environmental impacts of new activities. So the opportunity that came back to come to Duke to work on, um, to get back into research, which I, I did miss at the time and really wanted to do more research. And plastic pollution seemed like a great topic to be working on for the PhD because it had natural science elements. It had the social science policy elements that I had got through some work experience as well. Um, and yeah, it was great to be able to kick it off with kick off the PhD working on the plastic policy inventory and analysis. Um, I think it really set the stage for a lot of stuff that has come later, which has been fun. I just wanted to share really quickly, Zoe, so my master's, I studied abrasive blasting media that removed the paint from ships and other. <laughs> so like I was studying the waste part of what you were looking at. And it was it was a problem then when it ended up you know, mixed with the abrasive blasting media. But this is just a, it is so funny that both of us were looking at that for our <laughs> masters and ended up in the plastic space. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a full circle moment. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I love it. So Zoe, um, you know, with this, with this inventory, I do remember seeing you give talks on this report a few years back and to really huge, um, varied international audiences. I'd just love to hear from you. You know, can you share some of the positive and negative responses that you all got? And did you ever really imagine how big of a response you would get from this inventory? Yeah, great question. And I think some of those opportunities to share our work is some of the highlights of my PhD for sure. Um, so definitely, I think one of the most positive feedback that we repeatedly hear is that you, you know, there's a lot of scientific articles out there, there's a lot of giant reports out there, but having this online database that can be searched, where you can download original policy documents, you can search any keywords. So if you're interested in microbeads, for example, then that our, our search system will actually search all the policies and return those that are interested that use the keyword microbeads. Um, so I think that has been the primary positive feedback that we've gotten, that folks can really take this data that we've shared and put online and it's free of course and that they can use it how they need and we've tried to adapt and have different um 
tools based on what the focus groups that Rachel briefly mentioned earlier, where folks, you know, might want to be able to search by a certain geography as well. And that function is there um, in a certain language. And I think that brings me to the probably the biggest, um, you know, criticism that we get and that we're working to improve is our original policy database that is reflected in our 2020 report and our 2022 environmental science and policy paper is that we have a, had a pretty big English language bias. So we did translate policy documents from French and Spanish to English and then conducted our analysis, but we were definitely biased based on um, English language. So we've since then you know, tried to expand um, through another grant that we got and utilize a lot of the other language skills that we have uh, and expand our team, um, hopefully working with language departments at Duke, that would that's another avenue that we've been looking at. So now we have a lot, we have lessened that English language bias, but I think that is some of, um, that that's one of our limitations. Our other limitation probably is that we have less policies at the subnational level. So at the local level, your cities, your states, your counties. Um, those are more of a set of examples, but we're always adding and updating. And as Rachel mentioned, we'll have uh, more than 700, I think you mentioned. So over 550 yeah. now. So yeah, so we're we're growing and, and hoping to lessen those biases. And then to your second point, did you ever imagine how big of the response we would get? I, I think when I first entered, I was like, oh, this is a cool policy project. And then I started looking into the literature on plastics policy that currently was existing in 2018. And, you know, we are standing on the shoulders of giants as everyone is in research. And there are a lot of great things out there, but I was like, oh, this, this will be really great if we can share this resource. And I think that at some point when I got a better grasp of the literature, I realized, oh, this, this will be a really valuable addition to the field. At first, I was not quite aware because I was a new, new PhD student, but um, I, I think it's been a really rewarding experience and and um, happy to see it continue to grow. Love that. Yeah, I'm um, I'm in the camp of we're so grateful for for this work. So absolutely agree. So I'm curious. I want to hear a bit more about what you what you both are currently working on. And Rachel, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with you. I was looking at your most recent paper, and this paper is entitled inequitable distribution of plastic benefits and burdens on economies and public health. There was a there was a part that really stood out to me. It's is resonating with me and and also we're seeing some of this in in our work as well. So this is speaking in the context of plastic waste management. You say in the paper, in some instances, social enterprises in low wealth areas collect and recycle waste, creating a market for upcycled goods. While such endeavors generate local socioeconomic benefits, they perpetuate a status quo in which the burden of responsibility for waste management falls on downstream communities rather than on producers who have generated far greater economic benefits. And this is now written sort of down in black and white in a, you know, in, in a paper for publication. I think that's, um, I, I think that's great. So... I would also add here that the we know that the pollution burden starts at production and that's falling on all of those local communities as well. So I would love 
for you to tell us a bit more about this work and and what your goals are for it. Yeah. And also, I just want to say about the the inventory, I think our goal has always been to have it be useful. And so I'm so glad to hear that it is useful because if it wasn't, we would we would stop. Um, so I'm just I'm just glad to hear that. But the the piece was an effort to kind of begin to identify and put in in one place uh, the many social and economic dimensions and effects of of plastic during the entire life cycle. Mm-hmm. And so for those who are not familiar with the piece, it's it's a smaller review article that identifies examples of one benefit and one burden for each stage of a macroplastics life cycle, knowing that if you were to expand the scope uh, to, to more stages and more types of plastic, you would be able to identify kind of more dimensions on this. But I think there were two reasons that we wanted to pursue this. Um, one is, I think, my sort of visioning of of plastic. And I don't think, I don't know if this like metaphor or vision works for other people, but I think often about how like just one piece of plastic will move so much around the world potentially during its life cycle, you know, from petrochemical extraction to refining to manufacturing, trade, use, waste, you know, waste trade, et cetera. And in that movement of, you know, a bag, for example, it can kind of touch on a lot of different communities and stakeholders. And some may win, some may gain some benefits, and some may be harmed either physically through exposure to chemicals or socioeconomically. And to me, that's a really powerful way of thinking about the the entire kind of scope of the plastic pollution issue. Um, And I wanted to to be part of the kind of cohort of people that are demonstrating that. I also wanted to be part of that same group of people that are, like you mentioned, Jenna, introducing into academic writing that, that plastics is broadly an environmental justice issue. I think in my experience, sitting on different roundtables or having kind of being part of any sort of stakeholder convening, there is often folks from academia, typically like the old guard, who are saying, you know, there's just not enough of an evidence base to prove that exposure to X additive causes, you know, increased risk of certain uh, chronic illnesses or, you know, that it might have effect on on social and economic conditions. And I and I think that that is just a little bit behind where where civil society and advocacy groups are in their in their holistic understanding of plastic. And so I'm trying to to kind of normalize with other amazing researchers, like Zoe said, we kind of stand on the shoulders of um, this idea in academic settings that this is this is an environmental justice issue. Um, and I think that the really cool thing about this work is, and I hope Zoe can talk more about this, but we, uh, the way that we pulled together these examples was by having conversations with different members of the Plastic Pollution Working Group at Duke. So people with legal expertise, policy scholars, cancer researchers, uh, kind of marine biologists and ecologists, uh, folks in that realm, people who understand international development, people who are thinking about the local level. And they're the ones that really identified an understanding of and an evidence base for these issues. Uh, So that was a really amazing opportunity to be transdisciplinary in our work 
and, you know, thinking about what could have happened if we, if, you know, in a future project, we can engage more, you know, more disciplines and more perspectives and more stakeholders and really understand the full scope of, and the magnitude, I think, of, of the social and economic dimensions of plastics. Yeah, I can just quickly add, because I think Rachel touched based on it nicely, but um, something I've been like very uh, motivated by at Duke and really into um, is this plastic pollution working group that Rachel discussed. So we co-founded this group in 2019 because we saw a need to connect researchers across Duke who were studying plastic pollution who didn't know each other. And Amari, some of the idea from this came from the Journal Club. So I thought about the Journal Club and how we were mainly students connecting, but I thought, oh, we need to get the faculty in the same room. We need to get undergrad. Well, we had undergraduates in the Journal Club, if I'm remembering correctly, but we need to also get the faculty in the same room and turn this into um, a group where we can collaborate on research together. So we've now have 49 faculty students and staff and we're across at least 12 different departments and divisions. Rachel touched base on a lot of them, but we have folks from the School of Medicine, the Department of History, from Engineering, um, of course, from the School of the Environment. But it's it's been a lot of fun for me and really rewarding to be able to bring folks together and see products like Rachel's recent paper come out that highlight a lot of this interdisciplinary work and the different lenses with which you can research plastic pollution from. Yeah, I was going to add, and even outside of Duke, since I think I'm I'm still a part of that working group. <laughs> <laughs> yes, alumni alumni are are a part of it, and we hope to expand to the larger community as well. So right now we're we're just keeping Duke alumni, but um, we hope we can join with folks at UNC, NC State, NCCU, um, local communities as well. Once we once we're um, more established, I think. How about outside of, of North Carolina? <laughs> and your neighbors and in Georgia. <laughs> You're with your neighbors Absolutely. in Georgia too. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's great. And then I guess the uh, the other thing I was thinking about um, from that quote from the paper about just the the burden of waste collection, it, it felt like a, it reminded me of a personal story of like my own family. My grandfather collected cans and uh, plastic bottles, you know, all throughout my life growing up. And I just remember, wow, he did so much work just within every community that he inhabited to collect that because there's a bottle buyback program. Mm -hmm. And he would always say, you don't leave money on the ground. You know, mm -hmm. you, you gotta, you gotta pull it together. And so the, the idea that there's this like unseen burden or, you know, requirement to, to, to not leave opportunities, um, or let them go. It's, it's, it's real. Um, and then, Thinking about environmental justice just for plastic pollution, I remember putting out uh, a tweet um, or toot now for, for people who are on Mastodon uh, to people to say, hey, what, what are we doing to address the environmental justice implications for plastic pollution? I think that was a few years back. And I really, I think there was a lot of interest, but there was no like real work being done or published on it. And so it's so great to see papers like these um, start to come out now uh, and the progress that we're making to try and bridge that gap. Mm -hmm. But I want to also switch gears also because Zoe, I know that you're about to finish your PhD at Duke and I just finished mine. 
2021. And congrats uh, on submitting your dissertation draft to your committee. And I really want to hear a little bit about your dissertation topic, your experience in the PhD program, and like, what is it like to be at the stage that you're in? Thank you. Yeah, it's really exciting to be um, at the end of a PhD. So my, my dissertation is entitled Multi-Sector Mitigation of Plastic Pollution, Approaches from Biology, Policy, Law, and Industry. So you can probably gather from that title that it's extremely interdisciplinary. Um, I would say about half of my dissertation is looking at risks posed to plastic pollution to marine animals, and I use the sea anemone as a model animal. And the other half is focused on characterizing government and corporate responses to plastic pollution. So overall, we want to see, you know, are there gaps in the governance landscape? Are there mismatches or miscommunications? And how can we better chart a path forward for plastics? Um, I think it's unusual to have, you know, both laboratory research with sea anemones, for example, or any model animal, and, you know, chapters looking at large corporations or governments. But for me, it's been like really immensely rewarding. It's been um, a lot, a lot of fun and a really positive experience overall. Um, I, I really like being able to switch and use different lenses. And now I'm working to connect all of those. And, you know, I think we talk a lot about using science to inform policy. And that's something I'm thinking about now every day as I'm wrapping up my dissertation. Um, so, yeah, more about the stage that I'm in. I just think that it's, been it, it feels like there's a lot of big steps every day like to sending off the final draft to my committee i'm also doing interviews for next steps so i'm dressed up more often than i normally am so i feel like i'm always um you know taking these big steps and and wanting to leave what i've started at duke off um right as i as i look forward i was just gonna say that is a big uh change from writing your dissertation to having to be on an interview, right? So I remember sitting and writing my dissertation and I, I probably wasn't, the personal hygiene goes down a little bit, like how have I, when did I shower or how long have I been sitting here and, you know, have I eaten or whatever? And, and, and then all of a sudden having to get ready for an interview. So kudos to you, Zoe, for balancing that right now. It's, it's not an easy stage. Um, so speaking of sort of normal life, things. Um, I want to just talk about sort of some other aspects of our lives, right? It's important that uh, we just talk about our humanity as well. And um, Rachel, we were having a conversation uh, recently as well. And you were talking about being a part of a, of a Jewish community where you are that also looks at social justice yeah. and that you've really uh, come to enjoy being a part of that community in in your time sort of outside of work, but that you've also even brought up, um, you know, plastics and, and sort of your work into that as well. But I'd love for you to to share more with us about that. Yeah, thanks. I would love to. Um, yeah, so I'm a I'm on the steering committee and I guess I'm part of a member of this group called Carolina Jews for Justice. So it's a kind of cultural home for progressive Jews in North Carolina who are both congregationally affiliated and not congregationally affiliated like me. So not members of, of synagogues or temples, but, but seeking that sort of community. And it's a, you know, a small and, and mighty group, but mighty group that's 
pursuing, you know, social justice and racial justice objectives by by building coalitions and I think following the lead of, of folks who are are most impacted by the by the issues that that we're interested in. But I love it. It's been, you know, a really nice community. I've I've made lifelong friends. And it's been fun uh, to bring in kind of Jewish values and understand how some of the Jewish values, like this thing called tikkun olam, which is actions to repair the earth, can be used in thinking about uh, environmental justice and and repairing environmental harm. And so we've kind of expanded some of our environmental justice work and and brought in some of the Jewish tenets into that. And I've learned a lot through the process as someone who was not particularly engaged growing up. Um, and yeah, I think I think it's been, it takes up a lot of my time outside of work, but, but it's really impactful. We haven't touched on plastics yet, um, but we have engaged with kind of interfaith groups who are working within their congregations to, to, to reduce their waste footprint. And they're so passionate and they're so engaged and they're really working from the bottom up and with with no resources so it's been it's been important i think to be connected and grounded through those communities and not necessarily like on the high level of like what the un is doing right yeah i agree i mean understanding what those community issues are and just being a part of that community is so important as we think about this issue on the grander scale so yeah really appreciate that work as well yeah, I'm just thinking even just the idea of being in community, being whether that's Zoom or in person, is just it's just so important these days with the fact that, you know, our outside world is is kind of changing and evolving. But having people that we can relate with and, and solve these greater issues is is just so important. But yeah, to- for people in the triangle, we have bagel action hours monthly and we get together and we have bagels and write postcards or, or do some educational activity. So it's good fun. Ooh, I do love a good bagel. <laughs> and open yes. to all, regardless of affiliation. And we have phenomenal bagels. So Love it. Oh my gosh, now I'm hungry. <laughs> okay. Well, to kind of switch also to Zoe. So, um, you know, when I was in my PhD, I do remember uh, not doing things outside of it, uh, whether that was starting that YouTube channel and doing science communication or just mentoring young middle schoolers uh, on Saturdays to teach them about water quality with sensors. And so I wanted to ask you, Zoe, you know, what is something outside of your PhD work that's helped you balance all of this intense work that comes with the PhD? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, um, some of it has been some education outreach that you alluded to as well. So we have an annual event at the Marine Lab, Growing Equity in Science and Technology, just for short. Um, so I've been on the fundraising team for that. So I think that has kept me busy. Um, and also, um, you know, just more broadly, I, I really enjoy um, reading. I read for like, read fiction books. I'll um I, I've enjoyed making art, so I'm I'm can see one of my paintings. It's not great, but it's fun, and it's a great way to reduce stress. Um, so I'll take local classes at our local Durham Arts Council, or visit. We have um, a, a small but mighty art museum on campus called Nasher, 
And actually, while I was there last, I, I snapped a photo of this, but I, I forgot to share it with anyone. Um, so I'll share it now. Um, there was actually a piece of art that was made with plastic bags, um, and it was really beautiful. I'll I'll post a photo on Twitter later, but um, it. I think that I have yet to use an intersection of art and plastic. Um, right now, it's just been you know, whatever comes to mind. But I think that there's a lot of power in that. Um, and upon seeing that piece, I, I had all sorts of ideas of of how to have art and science um, collide mm -hmm. for good. <laughs> I can't wait to see that picture. I mean, art is great, whether that's uh, being able to balance out the stress of life. I mean, like you mentioned for the painting, I did color by numbers and coloring books to get through the last of the PhD. But to see some really impactful work like that picture or that painting or the interactive bags um, to talk about plastic pollution, that sounds really interesting. I'm going to have to look at that. Yeah, I look yeah, forward to that it's too. It's beautiful. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, I did some, this is interesting. I did some painting too during my PhD. I loved a, acrylics, like the way the colors would swirl together. So this is apparently a good stress reliever. So, yeah, you and and just to mention, you can find Rachel and Zoe both on Twitter um, and follow them there as well as Amari and I, um, if you want to see some of these Twitter conversations we're having. So we were talking about science communication at the beginning of this episode. So I'm curious, uh, both of you, if you could just briefly tell us why you think that's important. And then also, what is your favorite mode of of science communication? I can start us off. Um, I mean, I think it's just so, so immensely important. It's of course important to share findings in your typical means of scientific articles, reports, and so on. But the number of people that may never pick those up is unfortunately very high. And I get it. I think that people are busy. They have their own lives and priorities to live. And, you know, it's not, it's not the primary way of um, communicating. I think this is something that I probably have yet to engage with because I don't think it's where my skill set really lies, but I find um, comedy to be a very impactful way of communicating science. So I'm thinking of you, Amari, and I'm thinking I, there was also a Stephen Colbert, I believe, show that or, or special that came out um, about recycling. I think those ways to touch base on real life issues while also making people laugh because the environmental field can be um, definitely, you know, can take a toll. It, it, it's often bad news. So I think finding a way to make people laugh at the same time can be a really great way to to get the point across. Absolutely. That's why I'm starting my TikToks right now. I'm like, how do we make people laugh? <laughs> okay, now we got to find Amari on TikTok. <laughs> yes. Oh, man, that's good stuff. Oh, uh, and then Rachel, did you have a response as well? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is is echoing what what Zoe said. I really do feel and I feel this more and more as I as I progress further in my research and and my work. But not like not only as science communication is important, but I feel like as academics we kind of have this like duty and this responsibility to to share our findings to to diverse audiences and make them as accessible as possible. Like I think we all really want our work to to empower people to be able to show up in the spaces where you know they can advocate for themselves and 
and do that. And so it, I, you know, it does get frustrating that it still feels like communication is an afterthought mm. and something that, you know, if there aren't enough resources to do that, that you don't do. And, you know, if I ruled the world, <laughs> I would, I would do things a lot differently. So it's definitely something I try to incorporate as much as possible and push for. I think the, yeah, like I love Twitter. Um, but I think my main avenue for science communication and Amari, you've helped with this last year is I'm part of a, a project team at Duke that supports a group of undergraduates who are developing um, and implementing science and health curriculum um, to high school students in Durham public schools. And they're really trying to, to bridge the gap um, and increase the pathways for, for underrepresented and systematically excluded folks within the Durham public school system and for people who are engaged in in um or interested in in science and health and kind of the intersection of, of of those in in North Carolina. So being able to support those students who are trying to communicate, I think, complex and interdisciplinary uh topics to to high school students has been, you know, my main outlet to try to increase my science communication. And Amari gave an awesome talk last year to some of the undergrads about how to use different types of social media and pointed to her incredible YouTube channel and, and I think taught them a lot. So I think there are lots of ways to do it and lots of communities to engage with. Um, and yeah, I also love Canva, um, but I'm bad at it, but it's fun to, to get to at least pretend you can do graphic design. I like Canva too. Oh, I'm sure it's great. <laughs> I tried I to make the logo. Yeah, I tried to make the logo for this in the in in uh, the logo for the podcast in Canva. The first draft one is where that was created. Who knows what the final is going to be like yet? <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, I think just thinking back on on you know both your comments, Rachel and Zoe, for science communication. I mean, the the level of impact and like the metrics are just so much. They're just more of a reality when you're actually interfacing with people in person. You can see their faces. You can you can share the important information that they need. Um, versus also, you know, if you're on social media, you can see the number of people who are actually seeing it and engaging with it. Versus if you're, you know, writing a scientific research article, maybe you'll get a couple citations or a couple of views, but it's not with the wider audience. So um, it's it's really great to see all of the the great science communication that you all are a part of. So for a final thought, part of the reason we bring guests on here is to really hear different perspectives. We know that systems will only change in a just and equitable way if we have representative perspective and voices at the table. You two have spoken about this throughout, I think, this episode, but I'd like to just hear you sort of your answer to the same question that we really ask everyone. So when thinking about plastic pollution and our, you know, environmental issues at large, what voice is either missing or would you like to see more amplified in this space? And sort of as the second part, how do we make that happen? Uh, so Zoe, let's start with you. Yeah, it's a great question. And I started by thinking about this of like, what voices or what are we hearing a lot of? And then um, so it's sort of a, a convoluted way of answering, but the first thought that I had was a little bit of recency bias about one of our recent papers that came out about how large corporations are responding to plastic pollution. 
and they're talking about recycling a lot, um, whether it's advancing recycling or incorporating more recycled or recyclable content in new products. And while I think this is very valuable, um, I think that on the ground and the data is showing that at least globally since about 1950, I think it was about less than 10% of plastic has been mechanically recycled. So I think that starting to shift that narrative of, you know, why are we relying on something that only works 10% of the time as a part of the solution? Um, can we increase that 10%? And then in terms of what voices, so I start to think about, well, the folks that are actually, you know, witnessing or who are on the ground and doing the recycling. So that can be, you know, at your local municipality or in, in a more informal setting and starting to bring those voices to the table about um, shifting this narrative of relying on recycling. So that that was where my my brain went. I think we've touched on a lot of different ways that this could go. Um, though, and how, how to bring them to the table, I think is it's really important to, I think, invest financially to get folks who are witnessing this problem firsthand to these major international negotiations, to the major international meetings, um, and so on, who might not have the financial resources to do so otherwise. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Rachel. Thanks. This is a, yeah, a great question. And I think the second part is particularly challenging to think about how to answer, but I have, I have two, two thoughts and I'll make one of them long and the other one much shorter, but some of the work we've been doing on uh, lately around the uh, around the policy space is trying to understand the effect um, that policy may have on you know either people who identify as women or people who were assigned female at birth and and either do or have at some point experienced menstruation and the the biological but also the social and cultural ways in which plastic and plastic policy may affect them. Um, and obviously, you know, people who look like me are really present in the policy space, but I wouldn't say that that folks who are impacted in the ways that we're talking about are are empowered um, or have a seat at the table and can probe people to either better understand or incorporate some of those gender differentiations into decision making. And like one of the things that has come up in my research lately, that I think is really interesting is for for heads of households who are you know keen to incorporate zero waste or sustainability practices in their lives like they're taking on the extra burden of bringing back their refillable container to the refill store um, to fill it up so the burden of of complying with uh, particularly consumer focused kind of interventions whether they're policy or or from the ground up local interventions will still primarily fall on, on women identifying people um, or, or heads of households. And so I think thinking about who is potentially inconvenienced and harmed by solutions should be uh, proactive as much as possible mm -hmm. rather than, than reactive. And, you know, I think it's kind of a trite answer, but I feel like the best way to, to bring them into the conversation is to empower them with information and agency, like, like real true capacity building, 
you know, provide them with the resources and the training to show up to those spaces uh, and 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 either push for better research on on the kind of biological effects of exposure to plastic and plastic additives uh, on pregnancy outcomes and birth outcomes um, from menstrual hygiene products, all of that stuff, but also about, you know, who's who's the solution going to fall on? Um, so that's my longer answer. And my short answer, just plugging back into the Jewish stuff is is faith groups. Um, faith groups are pretty present in the climate space. They're present in other other spaces, and I don't see them that much in in plastics yet. And so I think kind of allowing folks to to understand that waste and exposure to to toxins is is also part of the kind of creation care for all beings that that is part of their purview. Um, so I'd love to to see more of those groups involved, and maybe they they exist, and I just haven't seen it. Wow. Um, just thinking about the idea of, yeah, the, the additional burden of heads of household, uh, you know, making things easier for them to have a voice. I, I just imagine you got to be able to give them, pay them for their time to, to be a voice, you know, because that's an, that's then an additional burden for them to take time out of their day to talk about their problems, you know? Um, yes, but I agree. Mm-hmm. Right. 100%. <laughs> you got, you got to put in, you got to pay them for, for the work that they're doing. Cause it's so much unpaid, you know, that is super valuable work that's being done, but we need to, we do need to move this upstream, move the responsibility upstream to people that are, are doing a lot of this production, um, that leads to so much of this pollution. Yeah. So that's that's really great. Thank you. Circles back to your paper, Rachel, right? Who where's the burden? Where are the benefits, right? Who's getting who's getting yeah. the benefit and the economic benefit from all of the work that those head of households are doing? Hmm. Yeah, and I don't try to be like a Debbie Downer. I just think the solution scape is is like complex and nuanced and better to talk about it than not. I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. That that's what we're here for. Now I'm I'm really hovering on this idea of of burden and thinking about what faith based groups you know it could do to interact and create larger change. I'm really excited to maybe this will inspire some people that are listening to start these conversations and create the change that we're we're hoping to see today. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, I I really want to thank you, Rachel and Zoe, for all the good work that you're doing for being so. Uh, thoughtful with your answers and and the dialogue today and for taking your time uh, to join us. And um, we really, really appreciate it. And we want to thank all of our listeners as well. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us on the Aqua Thread.